Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We've talked a lot about chronic pain issues on this program over the years and how people who live with chronic pain and who are subjected to uh, debilitating, agonizing chronic pain 24-7 sometimes are driven to the point of suicide. And one of our guests on this program a number of years ago did, as many of you may remember, commit suicide shortly after we spoke with her. So the news on uh, globalnews.ca early this week was that British Columbia is decriminalizing small personal quantities of hard drugs uh, for personal use. Decriminalizing. All right, fine, that's one part of the story. But there's another part to this. And the other part is chronic pain patients across Canada, well over a million, some in suicide-inducing agony, are experiencing opioid prescription medications being reduced arbitrarily, often after many years of successful pain abatement, and without any incidents to be concerned about. We've talked to them. And I've talked to doctors who have told me off the record that they're afraid to prescribe opioids, even though they work for their patients, because they're concerned the medical colleges will discipline them, punish them. So why are chronic pain patients in both Canada and the United States increasingly denied successful dosing of prescription medication, opioids, which allows some quality of life? This is a big story, and it involves millions of people. And don't think of chronic pain as being headaches. It's very serious business. Dr. Hans Clark is the director of pain services, um, and medical director of the pain research unit in the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Management at Toronto General Hospital. He's a staff anesthesiologist and the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. Dr. Clark, good to have you back with us. How are you? Always a pleasure, Roy. I'm doing great. Thanks. I always like to ask doctors how, how they're doing. You never, Nobody ever asks a doctor how you are. <laughs> That's what I like to do. Kate Nicholson is the executive director and founder of the National Pain Advocacy Center in the United States. It's a nonprofit organization. They have Canadian advisors. The mission is to advance the health and human rights of people in pain. Kate is a former chronic pain patient herself and a U.S. government lawyer. And we've talked for years. How are you, Kate? Doing well, thank you, Roy. How are you? <laughs> thank you. I'm doing fine. Let's talk about Nobody this ever British Columbia. Radio host how they're doing, so, you know. Nobody has no. They always tell us how we're doing. Yeah. Nobody asks, but they tell us how we're doing. Uh, let me ask you, um, Kate. First, what are your thoughts of the decision by the British Columbia government? And it really is a two-parter, isn't it? It's sort of the one part affects the people who are addicted and uh, who are there's great concern about, and they're now they're they're small quantities of drugs being decriminalized or the possession. But there's the other side of the equation, and that's the pain patient. Yeah, it's an interesting point, um, Roy. I mean, I tend to be a fan of decriminalization and other harm reduction efforts amidst a drug overdose crisis that continues to escalate. I think we need new ideas and more aggressive approaches to treat the actual problem in front of us. But the common thread here is this. Um, it's just this sort of sort of oversight and prosecutorial approach that has harmed people with pain uh, who require medical use of opioids. Um, and that group of people still is not receiving sufficient attention because they're not in the headlines every day. 
So decriminalization does not mean that drug possession is illegal. It just means it won't be prosecuted. And yet, as you mentioned in your introduction, prescribers are afraid uh, to provide uh, medical opioids to people who have been on them in many cases for years because they fear this sort of oversight and, and prosecutorial approach. And that's the conundrum. Yeah, um, I should tell our listeners that uh, Kate Nicholson's National Pain Advocacy Center, the website is nationalpain.org. Dr. Clark, your thoughts on the initiative in British Columbia, but as well a perspective uh, from someone who deals with pain and pain patients on a daily basis in a very a direct manner. How significantly serious is chronic pain across this country and the United States, and what percentage of the population suffers with chronic pain, and how devastating can it be? All right, Roy. Well, I mean, let's tackle the, the very first question, how I feel about what's happened in B.C., and I can tell you that we know that you know the, the reason people have been dying as a consequence of this uh, opioid crisis has been polysubstance abuse and, you know, the increased, uh, uh, you know, dangerous supply of street fentanyl and, and these other, you know, uh, molecules that are that are very toxic and, and kill people. And so, you know, decriminalizing these things, as, as Kate said, makes sense from a harm reduction uh, standpoint, I, I, I would agree as well. Now, you know, you bring in the question of that chronic pain patient and, and pain in North America. We know that 20% of the population suffers from a chronic pain condition. And so, you know, think about that number. I know you mentioned a million at the, at the outset of this, uh, this radio station in terms of the opioid issue, but there are millions, even more than that, that are suffering from chronic pain. And so when, when we think about where we are in terms of chronic pain and in terms of opioid prescribing and, and the, the negative impact and the fallout that's happened as a consequence of those CDC guidelines and ultimately the, the guidelines that, that we somewhat uh, uh, kind of also rubber stamped in, in Canada is that there have been these negative consequences and these unseen consequences. And I think one of the most you know, heartening things was the same minister, uh, you know, Minister Carolyn Bennett, who gave that uh, announcement about the decriminalization at our Canadian Pain Society meeting, you know, a couple of weeks ago, stood up and said that, you know, we get it. We understand that we potentially didn't get this right, and there has been a fallout for the chronic pain patient. And so, you know, at a national level, at a federal level, I think there's an understanding where, and, you know, probably thanks to, you know, to you and, and other people who have taken up this cause to, to really speak the message of what has happened to many of our pain patients. And so, you know, the federal level is one thing, but you and I know that, you know, uh, it's the provincial uh, jurisdictions that treat uh, our patients and give funds to change things and move things forward. So let's, uh, let's hope that that's going to follow shortly. Now, there's a big difference between the street fentanyl and uh, the prescription opioids that are legitimate. Is, is, is there not? And uh, part B of that let me come to the provincial issue. When doctors have said to me, pain doctors, family doctors, have said to me that uh, they're concerned or they're afraid, some of them have said they're afraid, to prescribe medication that they've been prescribing for their patients because the colleges, the uh, physicians and surgeons, may threaten them or may even pull their licenses. I've heard that more than once. Oh, absolutely, Roy. And so, you know, I, I do think we have moved past that fear. Like, you know, there's still a lot of fear, but uh, we've moved past that scenario where we really, you know, I'm hopeful that doctors aren't so afraid of their license being taken away and things of, uh, of that happening. But what the unfortunate consequence has been is that many physicians, as you said, aren't willing to take on a pain patient. And so think about the number and the millions of pain patients. Think about 
uh, a family physician being afraid to do this and expecting a pain doctor to do this. We just don't have enough of them, Roy, to be able to do this. So we do have to swing this pendulum back so that the population can access physicians and access care by physicians at that primary care level. Yeah, just thinking of the numbers. I said a million because I, I didn't know. I thought it was a million and a half, but you say 20% of the population uh, lives with chronic pain. That's in this country, if I'm doing my math properly, at 37 million, that would be, uh, what, 7.4 million people approximately. We don't have a city in, in this country that has 7.4 million people. Absolutely right. And, and, you know, when we look at the numbers in terms of accessibility of, you know, multidisciplinary clinics and, or, or finding a, a pathway, especially for those that live in, in, in the rural parts of Canada, you know, one of the good things that, you know, potentially COVID has done, it has opened up telemedicine, virtual healthcare, and, you know, we still have a hard time reaching these 7 million individuals who need, who need help. I know if I open the phone runs right now and said, if you're struggling with chronic pain and you're having difficulty obtaining medication, phone lines would be jammed in 60 seconds. Kate, would you uh, share with us, please, the what needs to be known, what needs to change about uh, pain treatment and availability of medication for chronic pain patients and how the Supreme Court of the United States and the Center for Disease Control both come into play? Uh, certainly. I, I did want to mention, though, since you're talking numbers, that in the U.S., 50 million have uh, pain every day or nearly every day, and 20 million have this sort of debilitating, life-altering pain that, that you're talking about most often, Roy, which is people who regularly can't engage in basic life activities like washing the dishes or lifting a child or going out for a walk or, or working. Um, and we're seeing this tremendous chilling effect where about um, – that people who have been prescribed opioids for their pain now can't get into care in 50% of the primary care clinics in the United States. So people are not just having trouble getting their medication. They're also being dropped in healthcare altogether. Um, and a lot of this is a chilling effect. Um, the same thing as you're talking about in Canada, where the fear is uh, the, the medical colleges here, it's a variety of, of sources. Um, it is the the, the Drug Enforcement Agency uh, prosecuting uh, clinicians. It is uh, also state medical boards, uh, insurers, all of whom took uh, parts of the CDC's 2016 guidance uh, for prescribing opioids for chronic pain quite literally. Um, and uh, so there have been developments in both of these areas recently. I just wanted to mention, uh, as you raised it, that the U.S. Supreme Court will be issuing a decision as early as tomorrow, but certainly this month, um, in a couple of cases that uh, went up uh, regarding um, the criminal requirement for prosecuting doctors under the Controlled Substances Act, so our drug trafficking provision. There's an exception for prescribers. Um, and the, the problem, and I think the reason the Supreme Court took the case, is that in some of the circuit courts in this country, um, the criminal intent requirement, which is usually how we mete out responsibility for serious crimes, has been removed almost entirely. So we'll be looking for that decision. Um, and we participated as amicus curiae, which is a friend of the court, which means we weren't a party to the case, but have an interest. And our interest was just this conversation that we're having today, which is the chilling effect on care of people with pain 
and other people who require controlled substances because they're a mainstay in modern medicine for not just pain or addiction, but ADHD and epilepsy and lots of other conditions. Um, in terms of the update to the CDC guidelines, so they published um, an updated guideline this year. Um, they had a period of open comment, which is now closed. I, uh, in disclosure, was as part of a work group that looked at the initial version of the guideline. And there are some things to be hopeful about and some things to be concerned about. Uh, the hopeful things is that the two provisions that were so widely misapplied, both in the U.S. and in Canada, um, day and dose provisions that were really applied very strictly as one-size-fits-all mandates, are no longer uh, part of the, the top line or 12 recommendations in this guideline. And that's a good thing. There's also a lot of language acknowledging the harm to chronic pain patients, acknowledging the misapplication, stating that doctors need discretion to treat the patient in front of them, um, and that nothing in the guidelines should be applied inflexibly as laws or mandates. So that's all really positive. But on the other hand, there are still a lot of problems. They, um, the CDC is continuing to focus on morphine milligram equivalents, um, uh, and I'm worried that that's... Uh, Sort of their focus on that is still going to cause uh, implementation problems because it's really a lot of this forced tapering and oversight is based on those um, those numbers, the morphine milligram equivalents. There is still a preference articulated against opioids, but just for uh, chronic pain, um, and they're still only considering evidence uh, efficacy of opioids if it lasts. If studies last over a year, uh, which there aren't a lot of studies that last over a year because there are real ethical problems with having long-term randomized controlled studies with uh, real suffering people. Um, the, there are some real concerns in the tapering section. Uh, they're still sort of suggesting that once a taper is begun, it should never be reversed. And a lot of the evidence, we now have about 15 studies showing the dangers of tapering. Uh, people who have been stable on opioids, including that it increases their risk of suicide and overdose by three to five-fold. And yet, those studies haven't made their way into the guidance, um, and they're still sort of suggesting that once you begin a taper, you shouldn't reverse it for any reason, which is bizarre medical advice when someone, you know, usually you don't tell a doctor to, to ignore um, signs of distress in their patients. The other thing I would say uh, without, you know, going on too long about this, and this is an over 200-page document, so there's a lot there, um, is that it is greatly expanded. It no longer just applies to chronic pain. It applies to acute pain and subacute pain and chronic pain. Okay. So it's going to cover virtually all pain now. I have to stop you there, Kate, because we're just yeah. seconds away from being out of time. And you know what you're talking about because you were a chronic pain patient. Dr. Clark, is the, is the reality going to improve for the chronic pain patients in in Canada, twenty seconds, please. Yeah, sure. You know, you know, Roy. If uh, we don't learn from history, we're apt to repeat it, right? And so, so I think we've really learned how to improve our approach from the physician standpoint. And so, we have hope now. The federal government has realized, okay, we really had some some uh, you know unintended consequences that occurred to these chronic pain patients, and we need to address them. We need to fix it. And so, let's hope it uh, just falls down to the prevention level. 102 days ago, the Russians invaded Ukraine. 102 days. And you remember the predictions. Some of the most 
smart people in the world, were saying, well, Ukraine's only going to last about three days, and then the Russians will be in Kiev and they'll put their government in. 102 days later, they're not in Kiev. They're in the eastern part of Ukraine. But they're not doing nearly as well as they expected to. And we're going to talk now to uh, Mr. Dmitry Gurin, Ukraine Member of Parliament for Mariupol, the city that was leveled by the Russians. Mr. Gurin's been on our program a number of times in the last 102 days. Dimitro, thank you very much for coming back. What does it feel like 102 days later, 102 days after the invasion? What's it feel like? It's a lot. You, the first month, you think that uh, maybe everybody will understand uh, that the total stupidity of this war and, uh, you know, revolutionary, some kind of uh, revolutionary events of any kind in Russia and maybe palace cope and uh, it will stop now. But then you understand, no, this reign is for a long time. It will, it will last. And uh, it's a marathon already, not a sprint. Yes, it is. Now, what are the issues that are most significant to you? I read a story the other day, I think it, yesterday, day before, where President Macron of France had spoken with Putin, and, and he came away from that, uh, that, that phone call, Macron did, I understand, saying that Putin has to be given an opportunity not to be too embarrassed. I mean, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But I understand that that was particularly difficult for Ukraine to absorb. It's a pretty weird position to say that uh, we we don't have to humiliate Putin because he do it uh, himself uh, very successfully. And uh, I think that and in, in Ukraine, uh, this point of view, it's uh, pretty widespread that on, the only person who is humiliating himself now is Macron. Because if he thinks that uh, in, in in, in this situation, in this stage of situation, we can speak about humiliating Putin. Uh, then uh, he will he will do what? What what he is not doing without this so-called by Macron humiliation. So everybody thinks that it's delusional uh, position uh, of uh, French president because you. So we are very sorry. We are very. Uh, grateful for the help, but do, don't you understand the real situation? Yeah. What do, what do you want to say to people? What does the world need to know about Ukraine 102 days in? What are the issues that you want to really most share with my listeners across Canada? And, of course, we have people listening online in many parts of the world. What does the world need to know? Uh, people are tired of war now, of war in Ukraine, uh, but uh, and you know, no matter how brave the Ukrainians are, no one can keep the focus on war together. Uh, but this is a huge problem for Europe. People get tired of thinking that they can see Russian soldiers on the streets of uh, their cities. But it doesn't stop being a reality. The Baltic states are now really at a great risk. And uh, now the battlefield of this, uh, of this big war is in Ukraine. And uh, now we need a medium and long-range MLRS uh, and uh, because uh, if your artillery reaches the enemy and his artillery doesn't reach you, then it doesn't matter how many weapons the enemy uh, has. It matters how many shells you have. So it can change the course of this war, and we can beat out Russian troops out of the whole, whole territory of Ukraine, and we can denazify, really, to make this deputinize Russian Federation, 
and make from this country a democratic state altogether. Uh, and that uh, trading for the state will be more important than war. So it's possible. We just don't have to stop because if we stop one moment and say, okay, let's stop on the borders of beginning of, of this escalation of 24th of February. So we just uh, will give uh, Putin time to regroup. That's all. And now we have to go to the, to the goal. Yeah. And, and there's a very deep sense, I understand, within the Ukraine government, within the people of Ukraine, that you can win this. You can win this war, provided you get the materials that your military requires. Yes, we can win this war. Yeah, because it's for, for, for us, it's a long story, like 400 years story. And we have a very different episodes when we won and we, when we lose. And Ukraine has a historical, you know, historical background to understand that, yes, of course, we can, we can win this war. We made a siege of Moscow one, one, one moment in, in past. So, you know, it's in the, uh, in the space of po possible. And uh, uh, we need your help. We need your ammunition. Because, you know, now we are without our way of life and uh, without ability to plan. And that's what war bring, brings with, uh, with, it, with itself. Many of us are liberated, as Russians say, from our homes. My parents' uh, house in Mariupol was completely burned down. It's uh, 200, around 200 flats. Uh, he was shot several times from a tank. And uh, you know what's hardest for my mother? She's, 70, uh, she's 67, and uh, in her 67, she's without her pots and her pants. And uh, it turns out to be very difficult without your own very specific things, very simple. And uh, many families are without their homes. Many families are without their men because they're an army. And we are all without our sense of security. So that was what war brings. And now everybody has to think, do I have this in my life? If not, help Ukraine. Yeah, that's so true. The things that matter, the things that you live with every day, the things you reach for subconsciously because they just fulfill your day, not there anymore because of Mr. Putin and his gang. Oh, what a what a terrible reality. Now, for, for a world on the edge of a massive food crisis and famine, how much Ukrainian grain is being stopped by the Russians from reaching an increasingly hungry world. And I understand the Russians are taking a lot of the Ukrainian grain and moving it into Russia. Uh, yes, uh, there is uh, around there are around 22 millions of uh, tons of grain blocked in Ukraine and cannot be exported because of uh, blockage for their support, first of all, and a thousand ports. Uh, it's, it's a lot. And uh, several millions of uh, tons already were uh, transported from steel, let's say, what it, what it was in reality, it's, it was stealing, uh, from uh, Kherson region and from southern uh, territories and uh, transported to uh, Russia. They do it not for the first time. They well, 100 years ago, we uh, we had all of this, all this famine. And by the way, in Canada, 
that the Ukrainian diaspora was a huge wave of uh, immigration during famine in the 30s and, uh, and 20s. Uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, really, we see now that Putin wants to uh, rise stakes and uh, to make artificial uh, global famine uh to press uh, to cancel sanctions that's what i see now yeah yeah there's more on this to come finally i have to ask you about this i understand there was a soccer game between football (laughs) soccer game between ukraine and scotland and you why don't you (laughs) why don't you talk about it oh it's one zero one to zero and the only goal was scored by ukrainian the only problem is that <laughs> these were our gates. Uh, so this will remain one of the tragic uh, pages of this war. Uh, we, it's, it's a tragedy, of course. Yeah, but you guys won 3-1, to one, didn't you, against Scotland? Didn't Ukraine beat Scotland 3-1? Yes, yes. And uh, today it's 1-0 to, to Wales. It's just finished. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yes, oh, yes, and we, and we lost. And, and of course, it was a big victory to Scotland, and we won. But just now, like last hour, we had a game, and the only uh, goal was to our gates. It was auto goal from uh, our football soccer player. Uh, so we lost. I've been getting a lot of emails about my next guest. A lot of emails. I started telling you a little bit yesterday about uh, our guest and a little bit more today, and I put it on my uh, Twitter feed at the Roy Green Show. And so now I want to introduce you to the young woman I've been uh, telling you a little bit about. She and I have talked on a number of occasions over the last weeks, and I have, just want to tell you out of the gate, I have tremendous respect for her. I think she's extremely brave, and I think she's extremely determined and to the betterment of our society, and to the good of all of us. So, I'm just going to, I have to use her first name. She's going to tell us who she is. How are you, Nicole? I'm good, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you, and there's tremendous interest from our listeners to know more about you. So, um, let's do this. Let me ask you before I ask you to tell your story. Scott Neary is going to be joining us as well, former Crown Attorney in uh, Alberta and former senior public um, policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety who's been on this program for 30 plus years. Um, Nicole, why are you doing this? Why are you going public? Um, I want going public um, because I want to protect, I want to protect the public and prevent future victims from long-term and dangerous offenders. Um, Staying silent and sitting in the back seat watching as, the system's failing us, I, I just can't do it anymore. Okay, so please tell us your story, and I, I know you're going to identify yourself. There was a publication ban on your name, but you worked very hard to have that lifted, and you have had it lifted, so please share your story with us and take your time. Yes. Well, thank you, and bear with me, because it is a long story. My name is Nicole Davy, and in 2002, I was 13 years old. I was raped by a 29-year-old man, and it took me a few years to come forward. But finally, in 2005, I had him convicted. Getting the conviction had helped me to heal and become a stronger person. So 
so that in 2015, when I was contacted by an amazing officer who recognized the severity and the danger this person inflicted on his community, worked very hard with the Crown to get justice for victims and protect the public from them. They asked me if I could and would be willing to testify in a long-term and dangerous offenders trial. Without hesitation, I said yes and agreed because I would do anything to be able to prevent future victims uh, having lived the trauma that this guy had invoked on his, inflicted on his victims. Luckily, in 2016, the psychopathic sex offender was finally declared a dangerous offender and was paired with a 10-year long-term supervision order. I was so ecstatic that I finally thought that I finished and succeeded my job to protect the community from him. But it turns out it was just the beginning of my fight. I went from being a victim of my rapist to feeling victimized by the system. It started with my first interaction in 2017 with the Parole Board of Canada, Pacific Region. During this phone call, they argued with me and told me that he was not a dangerous offender. They proceeded to tell me that he was only a long-term offender. I left that phone call thinking that I did not and imagined getting that dangerous offender's designation. I had to have the Crown actually intervene on my behalf and correct them. So I'm still baffled to this day that they, rather than look through the file, decided to argue with me. Uh, Followed by my rapist deciding not to participate in a hearing, which then rendered it a paper-closed hearing. I was told I'd only be able to submit a written statement. I wanted my voice heard and not read on top of a pile of paper. I felt like this was a way for my rapist to silence me in the hearing. He used this loophole. So I asked for the victims, for the Office of the Obensman for Victims of Crime to help me. We managed to change the policy to allow all victims to submit written or audio statements in closed paper hearings across the board. In January 21, January 2021, my rapist had served his full warrant expiry and had to be released on his LTSO. I believed that the LTSO meant that you would be living in a community correction center, that you'd be monitored at a federal level at all times, that it would make it harder for him to fall through the cracks. I also knew with him being a psychopathic, untreated, high-risk, long-term dangerous sex offender that he more than qualified for the Police Services Act to be invoked, which would allow the, pol- the, which would allow the police services in his community to inform the public of his release. I contacted this officer and begged them to do this release. They said that they couldn't as they needed to protect his re- the success of his rehabilitation into the community. Within months, he broke his conditions. He broke laws. He displayed violence, disturbing behavior, and he was testing and pushing all the boundaries. Um, for this, he was only given a two-month reprimand. He was never charged, and he was released back out. The information that I was received through the parole board decisions was disturbing and set off every alarm bell. I demanded that the high-risk sex offender manager to release the information as he more than qualifies in doing so, and not doing so is pu- putting the public at risk. They again ignored me. Knowing what I got from the parole decisions and the information was appalling. I don't know how much I can share about it. It was just appalling. 
I couldn't sit back silently. I contacted every resource I could, asking them to intervene and to fix this policy as it's a matter of public safety. I was ignored, redirected, and for the past year, for the past year, I've been traumatized by it, feeling ignored, feeling like I'm drowning, and I'm the only person that knows that the potential danger that he is inflicting on his community, and no one is doing anything to intervene. I had to have my publication ban removed in order to come here and discuss this with you guys, and hopefully get some get some pointers on how I can change this policy. Well, that's my story. And Thank you for bearing with me. You are an amazing person. I've heard from victims of crime for so many years that once they're involved with the system, they feel as though the system represents the interests of the convicted offender and does not represent the interests of the victim. We pointed out some years ago that when an individual is incarcerated, they get a little blue book from Correctional Service Canada. And in the introduction in that little blue book, the convicted offender is described as the client. The person is the client of the justice system of Canada. Meanwhile, the the victims of the crime are pushed and pulled and bullied. Their victims' impact statements are quite often, um, well, they have to submit them for scrutiny for the parole board. And uh, I've had Victims tell me on the air that the members of the parole board told them, your victim's impact statement is too long, and if you don't shorten it, we'll do it for you. And the offender gets to see the victim's impact statement first. Nicole, how do you feel after sharing your story? How do you feel? Relief to finally have it out. Like I said, that publication ban had me me feeling drowning, like I'm screaming underwater and no one can hear me. Now that I'm free of that, it's like I, I feel free. I can breathe right now. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, former Public uh, Safety Minister, Senior Policy Advisor, also former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Scott, talk to Nicole, please. Hi, Nicole. Um, Hi, Scott. Thanks. (laughs) I got to tell you what uh, Roy was mentioning is something that, uh, frankly, you epitomize, and it's been something that I've... uh, observed over my years uh which is that uh you know what people make a difference people like you okay and sometimes it gets overlooked but our criminal justice system is not something that was invented by the federal department of justice three weeks ago okay it's a part of our culture it's been around for hundreds of years and there's a reason why the uh, style of cause is regina versus so-and-so and it's not because the crimes all happen in Saskatchewan. It's because that it a crime against an individual is a crime against society and us all. And therefore, it's in everybody's best interest when we know the truth about what's going on and as well about uh, deficiencies in the system. And having people, quite frankly, with your knowledge and your courage in coming and speaking up and exposing things is exactly in my experience, and you know, it's about 40 years of what properly informs not only systemic accountability, but also public safety and effective policy change where it's needed. So trust me, uh, I can tell with this that you're making a difference. Uh, I refuse to give up. I can't give up until I do. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, I remember, I loved being a Crown Prosecutor in Alberta. As I explained to people, uh, the reason I left was, and uh, it, it happened really because I was exposing um, defects in people who were being dangerous, repeat offenders who were being released early when they shouldn't have been, who went out and killed people. And then, of course, the system covered everything up. And I, because of my you know, pretty good contacts with the police, I managed to figure out the truth. And I had some political contacts. I was very lucky. I had uh, the chief crown in my office and the attorney general had my back and allowed me to go and speak in public, testify before parliament. But as I put it and explained it to people, I love being a crown prosecutor, but I got tired of tripping over the mistakes of the parole system in my courtroom. And I realized that the only way to fix it was to actually change laws and policies, and that meant Ottawa. And it's the same thing as what you're describing here. You look at this and just shake your head at the non-performance of the system, especially when, you know, they're actually using modernized tools to deal with these high-risk offenders, okay? But they're not using the other tools in the toolbox like you described. I've done a little bit of research into this, and the uh, the second series of, uh, of events with this guy, he had new charges against him, I think, I believe, starting or rising out of 2014, and he was uh, declared a dangerous offender and given a long-term supervision order of 10 years in uh, 2016, okay? And, you know, that's one of the new tools targeted uh, that's meant to, uh, you know, provide enhanced public safety, which is a good thing. But, you know, then, as I've been listening to you and reading some of the stuff, this guy is released. Uh, the conditions that he's released on are questionable. They don't include all of the lawfully authorized tools that would actually improve public safety. And then, bizarrely, when he is found to have breached his conditions, which, by the way, and I was involved in drafting these laws, that is a crime. And... As I read things, he's never been charged. Instead, no, they just bring him back for a couple of months and then release him again? Yeah, That's they, ridiculous. He broke the conditions, but as well, he also committed a crime and like broke the law, and they still didn't charge him. Meanwhile, if me and you or any of us were caught in the possession that he was caught with, we would all be charged. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's a dangerous sex offender caught with this possession. And decide, they're, oh, no, you're just freshly out. We'll just give you a quick reprimand and send you on your way. You know, I got to tell you, and Roy is familiar with this as well, too. This is part of what I believe is the culture at Correctional Services of Canada and the rubber stamp uh, parole board of Canada, which is we know best, never admit anything is wrong. And over the years, I've actually interacted with a lot of uh, Correctional uh, Service of Canada uh, uh, officials, frontline officers who are as appalled as you and I are about this. Yeah, and they Scott. they told me that the culture reflects a what is known as GTO or get them out and mm-hmm. KTO keep them out. Let me ask you this question: what what what's available to Nicole? Because I'm thinking of just Nicole. I think about you, 13 years of age, uh, being sexually assaulted by this individual who had already had a record, and we know more about him now. The, to have the courage and the determination to do what you did is just absolutely off the scale remarkable. Um, Scott, it, what's what's available to Nicole as far as the system is concerned? Well, we know the, the system wants to take care of him, but what's what's I mean, what's available to, to Nicole? Um, 
one of the things that I would recommend, and I believe Nicole actually touched on it, uh, take a look at what the existing legal tools are, like what I just mentioned. Uh, why is uh, this guy not charged? Section 753.3 of the criminal code, why was he never charged with that offense, number one? Number two, uh, the Police Services Act allows for the police to issue a public statement if they think somebody poses a risk. Why has that not been done? And that's not at the discretion of Correctional Services of Canada. Neither one are. Okay, so, you know, that's something that could be done. And that also leads me to looking at something that I've discovered along the way as well, too. Our justice system has multiple players with discretion. Okay, so, as I say, the cops can issue, the chief of police, where he resides, can issue a public alert warning, and as well... The police and the Crown's office can decide that no matter what correctional services may say, they're going to lay a charge for this guy having breached the uh, the criminal code right, right. by we breaching about, his conditions. We have about a minute, just over a minute left. Nicole, go ahead. What, 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 what do you want to add? You've been listening to Scott. You've been thinking, I'm sure, about what you've... What you said, you made a huge impression on the people in this country listening to this program with your courage. Again, remember, you were 13 when this happened to you. What do you want to add? Um, just that, yeah, I basically called everyone I could think of to find out why is he not being charged? Why is this not being done? And I was just told time and time again that these challenges and stressors are part, are part of the adjustment and the hurdles that you, and it's to be expected when he's just freshly, freshly released. So you're the one, you're just pushed to the side. You were collateral damage for the system then. Was that fair? Yeah. I mean, does, yeah. Um, yeah. Scott, do you remember a conversation we had? Uh, we were on the air together with Correctional Service Canada representatives some years ago who had that amazing statement yeah. about those of us who are not in prison. Remember what they said? Uh, Non-convicted individuals living in the community. That's how they described citizens. Yes. People who don't break the law are non-convicted individuals living in the community just about to uh, break the law and become a client. That's the way the system but the, works. Roy, just to quickly follow up on your point, the different groups other than Correctional Services of Canada, they should be held accountable for not using the legal tools that are available. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.